0: What story can Ukraine tell people in Latin America? Why is it important to have a conversation beyond geopolitics and focus on human experiences, on suffering and compassion, and on courage and resistance? You're listening to the podcast, Explain Ukraine. The guest of this episode is Sergio Jaramillo, former High Commissioner for Peace of Colombia and founder of the campaign of solidarity with Ukraine, Aquanta Ucrania, which is mobilizing Latin American writers, musicians, human rights defenders, politicians, and other voices in support of Ukraine's struggle against the Russian invasion. We had this conversation on June 25th, 2023 in Kyiv. The next day, Sergio traveled to the war zone in Eastern Ukraine, together with his Colombian colleagues, writer, Hector Abad, and journalist, Catalina Gomez. They were accompanied by Ukrainian writer Victoria Amelina. On June 27th, as they were sitting at the Ria lounge restaurant in Kramatorsk, 40 kilometers from their front line, it was struck by a Russian missile. Victoria Amelina was severely injured and succumbed to her wounds a few days later in a hospital in Dnipro on July 1st. Since that tragedy, I didn't know how to publish our conversation or whether I should publish it at all. Emotionally, it was tough. It took me several months to come back to it, and I asked Sergio to meet again, this time online, to tell me what happened in Kramatorsk on that day. I attach this excerpt to our conversation. I would also like to invite you to listen to a few other episodes, our conversation in memory of Victoria Melina and my talk with Catalina Gomez, a Colombian journalist who was also present with Sergio and Victoria on that horrible day. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World, Org. Here is our conversation. Sergio Jaramilio, welcome to this podcast. Delighted to be here with you. So we are
1: talking in Kyiv and you came here with the campaign Aguanta Ucrania." Do I pronounce correctly? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a great uh, big campaign of support of Latin American authors, writers, public intellectuals to Ukraine. And you are the founder of this campaign. Why did you decide to found it?
2: Well, in the first place, because I thought that what many uh, political leaders, presidents in Latin America were saying did not really reflect what I was hearing from people. Um, uh, But above all, because I really took objection to the narrative that Putin has been trying to establish from the beginning, saying that this is a proxy war, that uh, Ukraine is simply a pawn of the West, that the Ukrainians have no agency. So I called a friend of mine with whom we'd done lots of campaigns of communications in Colombia, Francisco Samper, both during the peace negotiations we had the, with the FARC and before as well when we were fighting the FARC to get them to desert. And I said, Francisco, we have to do something about this because obviously neither the Americans nor the Europeans can do anything about this, only the Asians, the Africans or or the Latin Americans. So let's go for it. Let's, let's do a campaign. And that's what we did.
1: So w- when you decide to prove that Ukraine is not just a pawn, that it has subjectivity, that it acts, uh, we are acting on our own, and I really... I have a a big admiration for for this line of thought because this is the way how we think. Uh do you like do do you tell something to your people in Colombia in Argentina in Brazil in uh, in Chile because I I can just assume that uh, there is a feeling there can be a feeling in Latin America that you know um uh, Global politics is just about the big powers fighting between it, each other, and ordinary people are just pawns, are just uh, victims.
2: So the first thing to do is to keep these, to keep this at the at the human level, and to say, as we've said in the past, this is a campaign in favor of common sense. If your neighbor invades you and wants to conquer your country, that's what it is. It's an invasion. And if uh, they throw uh, missiles at residential buildings, well, that's a war crime. You don't need to have a big discussion about geopolitics. It's all about connecting, and it's all about shortening the distance, which is something that many of the people who've participated in our campaign, very distinguished writers, um, musicians, film directors, have said. Uh, and I think when you take that angle and you leave aside the geopolitics, then the distance is immediately shorten because people understand. people understand in Latin America what it is to suffer. People understand what it means to be misunderstood, uh, what it means to be uh, to have no attention paid to you, which is not true of Ukraine now, but it was true for a long time. After 14, people didn't really understand what was going on in the Donbass, didn't really understand that the Russians had in fact already started an invasion of Ukraine. So that's what we're trying to do.
1: When you look at the experience of of your country and uh, of war in your country, uh, do you recognize something that is going on in Ukraine? What are are those things that you recognize? How society functions, how people think, uh, what emotions do
2: people have? Well, of course. I mean, there are some very obvious parallels. So if you have the, the figures right, until a few months ago, if you added the refugees abroad with the internal IDPs, you had something like 15 million uh, out of a population of 40 plus. Uh, in the case of Colombia, we had until recently the second largest population of IDPs in the world. So The phenomenon of displacement is something that's very familiar to Colombians. People having to leave forcefully their homes, their land, and having to end up, in our case, in very harsh conditions in the shanty towns of the large cities. That's something that Colombians have seen for decades. And uh, living with the idea of violence, uh, that's something that we've lived With for decades. And let me just very quickly mention a story, because as part of our campaign, we have had major figures of the human rights world in Latin America come forward. And the very latest, which you can find, by the way, on our Instagram account, which is hashtag AguantaUcrania, is an absolutely remarkable man called Leiner Palacios, who comes from a very, very poor village in the Pacific coast of Colombia, called Bojaya, where 20 years ago, the FARC launched a cylinder bomb and killed around 80 mostly women and children that were hiding in a church, blew this church up. And this man led his community uh, to Cuba, who were negotiating with the FARC, and actually started talking to them and forced them to come to their community and apologize for what they had done. And then he became a member of our Truth Commission. And now he's done a podcast for us, pointing out the parallels and saying, we know what it's like to have a a bomb fall on you. And we know what it's like for people in Kiev to go to sleep, not knowing whether uh, a missile will fall on their building. And this is completely unacceptable. So there you have a very direct parallel you talk about uh, these
1: people who participated in your campaign can you can you tell me a, li- a little bit more about other people because i've seen some of the familiar faces people whom i already know like carolina maroso like jo- jo- gioconda belli from nicaragua um, maybe you could tell some something more about them. yes of
2: course so um, the campaign has actually turned into a kind of movement with Uh, One, sort of a writer engaging and then calling another friend. We're here with Héctor Abad Faciolince, who's a major writer of Colombia and Latin America, and Héctor has been a major force also behind the campaign, calling friends. Um, I will give you an example of an unexpected um, voice of support, which was uh, Leonardo Padura from Cuba, who's by far the best-known writer of Cuba and one of the best-known writers of Latin America. And when I was with him at the beginning of the year in Cartagena, I had met him during our peace talks. And he said, you know what, I, I want to be part of this. And then he said this on, on the record this beautiful phrase where he says that as a Cuban, from our own sensibility... From based on our own history, having been as they had been invaded by the U.S. a number of times, uh, and from the point of view of international law, this is completely unacceptable. And this is a man who today still lives in Havana. So it's this is what I mean by common sense. It's obvious. Nobody can be in favor of an invasion in Latin America. It's true, and this is one of the big problems for Ukraine that the. Deep rooted anti-Americanism in many parts of the world uh, clouds people's understanding. But if you go back to the basics, people get it.
1: When Ukraine is saying that it wants to be part of the democratic world, and sometimes people are saying Ukraine wants to be a part of the Western world, part of Europe, I guess this way of of, of saying this does not really echo in Latin America. Uh, what echoes, what what people can find, uh, What in what people can recognize themselves? For example, when Ukrainians are saying they're fighting for dignity and for freedom, does it, can it echo?
2: I think so, I think so. I heard on a panel, actually, the very panel where we launched our campaign for the first time in public, in the month of January in Cartagena in Colombia, Andrei Kurkov, who was with us, used a phrase which I thought was very illustrative, which was to say, this is actually a struggle or a war between the future and the past. And people, which I understood as meaning, Ukrainians don't want to be pulled back into a past of oppression, as they may have lived in Soviet times, they want a, a different future, they want to be free. And I think this is something that is easily understood. Uh, uh, but we need to make it more concrete, we need to we need to make it more palpable, we need to move from abstract concepts to concrete examples. And so this actually needs a lot of work, we cannot fool ourselves, because we're far, we're far away from each other. They're There there are significant parallels. Ukraine and Eastern Europe and Latin America are somehow, you might call it the edge of the West. For a long time, people didn't really know very much about them. Uh, We both know little about each other. But the moment somebody speaks, like in Cartagena, for example, uh, Oleksandr Madhvićuk telling stories about the Donbass and the human suffering, people get it immediately. This is what we need to do. Uh, Tell stories, uh, show pictures, uh, recognize each other.
1: When Russians are saying in Latin America, and they, of course, are saying this all the time, that Russia is actually fighting against the American imperialism, and this is a major alternative to American You mean U.S. imperialism and colonialism. Do people uh, sympathize with this in in your countries, in Colombia, in Argentina, in in Chile, uh, in, in, in Cuba? And if yes, how to fight against this narrative?
2: Well, first of all, we need to be careful not to generalize because Latin American countries are very different By the way, I think it's a big mistake of people in the so-called West to use this expression of the global South and lump the rest of the world together into a group that could not be more disparate. Even in Latin America, you will find very big differences between... For example, strong anti-Americanism has deep roots in Argentina, I would say, coming from the 1970s and... It is not the case in Colombia, because lots of people have relatives who are working in the US. The view of the US is much more benevolent. The the US has actually helped Colombia enormously during the war, and uh, the Obama administration behaved very well with us during our own peace negotiations. Did not interfere. Was very supportive. Uh, so, except for bits of the left you will not find such strong anti-Americanism in Colombia. But you will find it in Argentina. You will find it in Brazil. You will find it in a different form, in, sometimes in Mexico. Um, and that's why we need to s- say always, look, this is not a discussion about the U.S. It's a discussion about the Ukrainians. And, um, but the Russians have done a good job of this. And you cannot underestimate the power, for example, of things like uh, RT News in countries like Mexico, even in Colombia. I mean, the capacity to spread disinformation is is very strong.
1: What is the background of this? Can we say that the background is the Cold War, when uh, the Soviet Union tried to penetrate? Uh, some of the Latin American countries and, and say, well this is our bloc, this is anti Western bloc, and it still exists until today?
2: Yes. It's it's pretty evident, isn't it, that the Russians are doing a pretty good job of of reviving the old the old Soviet allegiances. And in so many countries both for not just in the more extreme cases of armed group and insurgencies and parties like, say, the ANC in South Africa that had direct support from the Soviet Union, and to this day they feel they feel an allegiance to them, but even people... Who of of limited means, who could not at that time in the nineteen seventies or eighties necessarily go to study in uh, the U.S. or Europe, would would get scholarships to go to the Soviet Union, and there's there a past there, you know, of, of and so that this is the this is the structure that the Russians are trying to revive. Of course, it has nothing to do with the present. <laughs> um but it's powerful it cannot be underestimated and that's why we need to i have to insist we need to work on this on this narrative on this explanation on these stories that relate Latin America and Ukraine directly without going through Europe or the US what are these stories
1: let's let's think together uh, i remember that I talked to Carolina Maroso in this podcast and uh, she told me that she recognized the way how she she looked at Ukrainians and she traveled here on the day of invasion and I asked her what are those things in which you recognize yourself as an Argentinian and she said for example the role of women the role of women in the society which is really uh, very equal to man, sometimes even more energetic than man and uh, running uh, lots of things from the public things to the households. Uh, I personally think that there is also something uh, that we can find uh, resonance in the in the role of the folk culture, in the role of music maybe. What
2: are those things that you think that can be found in parallel? Let's start with the most obvious one, which is you really are in a situation of uh, David versus Goliath. You are the small guys who are resisting the big monster. And this is this is a, a pretty familiar situation uh, for most people in Latin America. Uh, and you do it not just by resisting with extraordinary courage, but you also Use things that to us are very familiar, like humor, which um, I'm not a great expert in, in Russian culture, although I do read Russian. And, you know, you see it much more associated with Ukraine than you do with the Russians uh, and how you get through life like that. That is that is something that is very much part of um, our world. Um, and then also this, um, this idea of kind of overcoming hardship, um, uh, this is, this is where we need to build the links because by the way, in the, in the case of Latin America it's not just violence and political violence. There are also phenomena, for example, like the great problem of migration, and, and the suffering of all these people. Um, uh, precisely, Carolina did a fantastic uh, program for her uh, news channel in Argentina about the uh, trafficking of humans from Colombia into Panama through the most hellish place anybody can imagine, which is going up this rainforest in this hilly country between Colombia and Panama. And I mean, this is just kind of completely appalling conditions of suffering. There are many experiences of suffering in Latin America uh, which would give people uh, an emotional base to connect with what's happening here in Ukraine, but we need to make those connections. Let me
1: ask about imperialism and colonialism. How these concepts are thought in your countries? Because on the one hand, uh, you can say that you, you suffer from the colonialism and imperialism, European American whatever. On the one on the other hand, you can say that, well, these are in in many ways your legacy is also the part of the legacy. I mean the linguistic legacy, etc., of this. Uh, uh imperialism um spanish imperialism portuguese imperialism for example and uh in ukraine we also have kind of a difficult so it's not that easy that we are colony russia in them as an empire because we're there are lots of ukrainians on different stages of history which were actually cooperating with the russian empire or you can say that russia itself started in ukraine and then kind of uh hijacked this uh this uh, Ukrainian story. So it's it's complicated, and it's important to think about it, not not in a linear terms. But how is it in in your countries?
2: The problem for Ukraine is that over time, some of this anti-Americanism has has become part of the identity of if not countries but certainly certain segments of educated society i i, I return to the example of of argentina uh, and that is to them more important than actually uh recognizing reality and i remember talking to somebody recently just saying oh but you know, this is this is a war against American imperialism, and if that's the case, then I will always be supporting them. And he said, well, but, but what are you, I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> it seems so far-fetched. But there you see the kind of the power of this of this ideology. Hmm? Uh, so how can we how can we move away from that? There's there's one thing that may seem abstract, but to Latin America is very important, which is respect for international law. As part of the campaign, we were speaking recently to a former president of Uruguay, which is a tiny peaceful country and possibly the best run, most developed country in Latin America politically, Uruguay. And he, first of all, used exactly this phrase. He said, we think Ukraine is very far away, but it's actually very close to us because we've lived here in Uruguay in peace for two centuries because international law has protected us because all of us in the continent decided that we were going to respect international law and international law is always the friend of the weak against the powerful and this is actually something that's quite quite deeply ingrained so we need to make the connection between this abstract and possibly rather boring concept of international law, and your physical protection every day. And to understand that is this, this order, it's what has kept us at peace. And if we allow things to go the direction they're going now, by having a permanent member of the Security Council, who should be upholding the international order, invade their neighbor with impunity and try to conquer it, then, then we are at risk too. This is, this is what we need to make as concrete as possible. And this is the big difference. Here we also have to work because we hear increasingly, I basically work advising people with difficult peace negotiations based on our own experience in Colombia. And quite often you hear complaints which seem to me reasonable that okay, okay, Ukraine is very serious, but there are other problems in the world. And they shouldn't forget about us. And I say, yes, that's true. The Europeans, and especially the US, has to do a better job of showing that they're not forgetting about the rest of the world. But let us not forget at the same time that there's a big difference here. Because this is not just about how many people are suffering, or how many people are getting killed, or how many... IDPs you have in each conflict, this is about upholding upholding the law that has protected all of us. This is the game changer. This is where paths take one direction or another. If we let this go in the direction that Russia wants, then we'll be in a completely different world and we will be all at risk. And we, make to make this, we need to make this, as I said, palpable and concrete for everyone.
1: That's very important this topic about the world order and uh, you mentioned already Security Council and I think everybody is unhappy right now about the UN and and UN Security Council and in Ukraine we have jokes about the United Nations which is actually absolutely helpless right now in this situation but uh, there is also a question whether we should reform all the United Nations and whether the the very format of Security Council with veto powers, big powers having veto, in which, by the way, there is no Latin American country, right? You have Northern American country, you have European countries, you have Eurasian country and Asian country, mostly. You have no Africa, you have no Latin America. Uh, Do you think that through this war, all of us, we need to start the discussion how to
2: reform this? There already there's already been there've already been some small interesting changes, like for example the initiative by Liechtenstein, if I'm not mistaken, at the General Assembly to make the veto votes more accountable, so that the P five have to actually go and, and explain why they're vetoing this. That's actually good. Um the UN, no doubt, needs reform. The UN, no doubt, has done, frankly, a, a poor job in this situation uh, vis-a-vis this invasion. It's obviously in a very, very difficult position because it's it has to be one of the... The invader is a permanent member of Security Council, so that is that is very difficult to deal with. Um but i don't i don't think that the main problem towards the future is some big un reform um although we we do want to we do want to find terms where which everyone feels acceptable what we cannot have what we cannot have is a world where your own protection if you're a mid-sized or a small country depends of being under the umbrella of some superpower, Uh, a kind of 19th century setup, which is what one has the impression the Russians and even the Chinese would want. Mm -hmm. So the only option to that is to uh, protect the system we have with the UN, faulty as it may be, and if uh, in order to increase the legitimacy of the Security Council we need to do some reforms, well, let's go for it.
0: Let
1: me also ask you about the danger which we see that uh, Russia with the help of China will try to develop a kind of an anti Western bloc, saying okay, and it, it will not depend really on on the results of this war. Even if and even when Ukraine, you know, reached success, wins this war, they can only give a message to other countries that look, this is because of Americans, Europeans, we don't want to be part of it. We would rather form a separate bloc, let's say anti-NATO. And there will obviously be incentives for certain Latin American countries to join this bloc. I'm thinking primarily of Brazil. Do you think it's plausible?
2: That is certainly what they are trying to do. (laughs) You're absolutely right and they have some advantages because i think that and i don't i think i'm not the only person who has said this that the un have made the un the us the us has made a, a serious mistake in insisting so strongly on its own uh china agenda when we are facing the most existential crisis for the world order since the Second World War, which is the invasion of Ukraine. Collapsing these two things is really not very intelligent because when you actually go and look, forget about Asia, Latin America, you will find uh, today China is by far the largest trading partner of Brazil, Argentina, even Chile has China as one of its... So, people will understand, okay, the Russians invited Ukraine, that's really very bad, very naughty, that should be rejected and hopefully punished. But don't ask me then to also have to join a coalition against China, because that's not in my interest. Hmm. Um, So, we need to distinguish and put each thing in its place. And um, uh, so far as this common front, I think it's mostly the Brazilians who who, who are delighted to be part of the BRICS. They feel very important. Uh, and I think they're being personally really quite irresponsible in what they're saying about Ukraine, that they're putting their own national interest first. But we need to deal with this, like with all problems, and and make sure that the world doesn't fall into this kind of Two-block structure, which which actually doesn't correspond to reality, and it only serves the interests of a few.
1: When we talk about Ukraine and Latin America, we really appreciate this campaign that you are running, right? And we kind of uh, admire this capacity of empathy across the ocean, across thousands and thousands of miles. But what can Ukraine give to Latin America? in terms of certain symbols, in terms of some changes, because we already talked about this. One of those things is that Ukraine, by its struggle, sends a message to all the Davids around the world that you can actually win against the Goliath or you can be heard. Is that the major message?
2: I think so, but let's be honest. I think that Ukraine itself needs to do a better job diplomatically. And I was saying yesterday at our panel that it's obvious, I understand perfectly well that you're in an absolutely existential struggle. You need to win militarily and your first priority is securing the support of the Americans and the Europeans. That's easy to understand. But you must not take the support of the rest of the world for granted for obvious reasons, and the farther apart countries are, the more you need to work. And I think this is a really important piece of the solution to this to this war and this invasion, because I, I am myself perfectly con- convinced that this this invasion will only end when somebody in Moscow makes the decision to end it, recognizes that they're in a absurd cul-de-sac, where they should have never got themselves into. And in order to get them to think that, and by the way, if you think about the invasion this way, perception is sometimes as important as as what's actually happening on the battlefield in reality, is what perception do people in Moscow have? So it makes a big difference whether they think that they're getting support from some countries or not. And Ukraine needs to do a better job of going out to the world and explaining its case and and being on talk shows and not just with governments, talking to people and um, there, there are efforts underway. Certain organizations, civil society, uh, have sent political scientists out to South Africa, to Latin America, to Brazil. But this is just the beginning. Um, and that is that is actually what's going to contribute to improving this understanding and getting people to realize actually we're all part of the same struggle. We, we, we really sympathize with, with Ukraine.
1: Maybe my last question, when you look into the future from the Latin America, what kind of future, what kind of world do you think about, do you dream about? For Latin America? For the whole
2: world? For the whole world. Ah, well, I first want to go back to the beginning and say I am sometimes really surprised that not more people understand how utterly, utterly serious the current situation is, and not just because of the risks that are pointed out so often, the recklessness of the Russians, we saw that with the dam and you cannot write off their doing, even Putin doing even more more reckless things. Uh, But it's simply because if they get their way, then we will really be in a different world. We'll be in a kind of 19th century Realpolitik world where your own peace and security will depend of your being under the umbrella of, of some powerful guy. The idea of sovereignty, the idea that we're all equal before international law disappears. And this is intolerable. So I, I, I do want to go back to this. This is what we need to defend. I am, I am optimistic. I am op- I'm, I'm certainly optimistic for Ukraine. <laughs> Anybody who's talked to Ukraine understands that uh, in, in many ways, Ukraine has already won. This is my own opinion. It's won strategically. Is now just a question of how much of its territory hopefully all it can take back but the ukrainian nation has survived and has become much stronger but we need to make sure that this this interest of the powerful don't get their way uh that the mid-sized and small countries continue to enjoy the protection of international law and this is why we need to make this a joint a joint struggle between Latin America, and Ukraine.
1: Sergio Jaramilio, thank you so much for joining this podcast.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: This was our conversation on June 25th, 2023. As I told you in the introduction, I recently asked Sergio to come back to it and talk a little bit about what happened on June 27th in Kramatorsk and about Victoria Melina, about her life and her death. Here's our recent conversation online about this.
3: We recorded our conversation in June 2023, before Sergio... Uh, and uh, his other colleagues, uh, Catalina Gomez and Hector Abad, went to Kramatorsk together with Ukrainian writer Victoria Amelina. And on 27th of June, there was this war crime, horrible war crime, the direct uh, hit, the direct strike of Russian missile on a restaurant, pizzeria, where there were many people dining, including this group. And uh, this horrible tragedy happened. Uh, Victoria Amerina was injured in the head and she only lived for a couple of days and she passed away on the 1st of July, 2023. So, Sergio, I would like to talk with you about this. Uh, This is the... Let's let's first talk about both Victoria and the memory about her, but also about this war crime, the direct war crime that you witnessed with actor and with Catalina. And uh, this war crime took away the life of our dearest friend. It could have taken away also... It, your lives uh, but you survived this horrible attack it has taken away other lives of those people who who were uh, at this restaurant at that at that moment so we are talking about this in october 2023 it is 16th of october and i really wanted that we had a little bit of time distance to talk about this first let me ask you to recollect what has happened in this in this uh, in this moment on this day, and maybe also to reflect upon the personality of Victoria Merena, what it meant for you, and what it what she means to the world right now. Uh,
2: thank you, Vladimir. Um, it's three months, but I personally. Um... I'm only beginning to to really uh, digest all of this and I don't think I will ever will properly because it was too much. Uh, Victoria, I found an absolutely extraordinary person. I first met her in Cartagena at the Hay Fe- Fe Festival at the beginning of the year. I got in touch with her and I uh, invited her to join the panel with you, and Hector and Catalina and Oleksandr Madvichuk at the Arsenal Book Fair. And it was in that context when we decided to go down to the Donbass, because I was very interested in collecting voices from Ukrainians in the Donbass to show people in Latin America what was really going on, that she decided to, to come along with us. And I understood her her boundless commitment to ukraine and we actually talked about this in the car driving down this really became her life um not just what she was doing investigating war crimes but helping the rest of the world understand the nature of the brutal uh, russian invasion and the violence um so in that context we set off and i will tell you more as we speak but what happened that day is that after having been traveling from, from Kharkiv into the Donbass over two days and interviewing people everywhere and collecting videos that uh, people can watch on our uh, Instagram account, which is hashtag Ukraine, we finally, at the end of the day, uh, on the 27th, settled for dinner at the rear lounge uh, restaurant in kramatorsk and it really was a feeling of relaxation because everywhere you're watching out that very day at noon we passed a petrol station where uh, uh, bits of a missile had just landed and we stopped to see and i sent a message to friends of the campaign saying this is what life is like for ukrainian civilians anytime that something can fall from the sky on your head. And lo and behold, that's what happened to us six or seven hours later. We sat for dinner at this pizzeria. We were sitting uh, on the terrace side of the restaurant uh, and there were people around, there were, there were families around, there were children, there were off-duty soldiers with their girlfriends. Um, and you finally felt okay now it's now we're okay. And I I was sitting immediately next to Victoria. And at one moment we'd only been there for about twenty minutes. The food had just come and I, I knelt to pick up a napkin from the um, floor and uh, and the missile struck and and it was as if everything stopped. It was like a film. You see bits and pieces of things flying around the air. Your your mind kind of expands, trying to understand, take in everything that's going on, and you look around and you see how is everything? How is everyone? How can I help?
3: And uh what what happened in in this place so did you did you understand how how serious the victoria's injury was and were there people who who came there to help i know that she was taken to the hospital in kramatorsk and at that time her uh, actually state was was very critical and then there was a decision to take it to take her to Dnipro to the hospital of Dnipro and uh, there were also friends who came uh, to this hospital of Dnipro but uh, how how would how did you feel that that moment after
2: Uh, I stayed by her side I first took her pulse, and she still had a pulse, but she was completely mobile and pale. And uh, uh, we had been talking uh, a few minutes before to a Ukrainian who, who spoke perfect Spanish and who had started chatting to us because she had seen the badge of our campaign, "Aguanto, ucrania on my back, So she was asking, what is that? So as soon as this happened, we turned to her and asked her to call an ambulance and ask for help. And very quickly, some paramedics arrived. And uh, we were s- sitting on this kind of s- semi-circular sofa. As I said, I was sitting immediately to her to her right. And so they put her on this later on the sofa, and start putting um, badges around her head. And it was at that moment, because at first you couldn't see anything, she was just a mobile, but then you could see that she was very, very seriously injured, and it uh, it looked very, very bad indeed. Uh, The ambulance arrived reasonably quickly, In my recollection, uh, she was taken away to the hospital. And then uh, we went with Catalina and Hector to that hospital uh, to find out how she was. Catalina and Hector fortunately had no injuries. I had uh, uh, a severe but superficial injury to my right leg and it turned out also to my elbow uh, that was bleeding, but it wasn't actually very much. Um, So we were in the hospital. Um, I was trying to sort of get checked up, but especially we we wanted to know whether Victoria was actually in that hospital. It took us some time. Catalina really, from the very beginning, did everything she could to be with Victoria and we established that she was there um and um, and waited and waited until at one stage um uh, catalina sent us off to the hotel late and and she stayed a bit more to have more news about victoria's condition which already was very clear was was absolutely critical and she had i think that very evening um have not I'm up mistaken fallen into a coma
3: yes i'm sorry to um that i'm asking this i i understand how difficult both for you and me it is to to talk about this but let me just ask what what, what victoria even after her death what what she is actually doing because uh, many people in the world know her name right now i hope many people in the world will read her books and uh, both prose and and poetry and uh, i have this impression that even from the outside world she continues to to help ukraine in a way and to to help document these russian atrocities and the fact that she uh, she has become a victim of this one of these russian atrocities is all uh, uh, that that she was documenting is of course one of the also horrible things to understand for our listeners uh, i would like to refer you to our podcast about victoria in this podcast which is called victoria Medina in memoriam so let me ask you sergio after after you was a direct victim of a russian war crime you were sitting in a civilian place and this was a high precision strike and russians knew that there were lots of civilians there lots of people there and this is their practice to target the civilian objects the crowds of people this is what they do regularly this is what they did in kramatorsk Railway station in 2022 killing uh, more than 60 people. Uh, this is what they did recently in Hroza in, uh, in a village in Kharkiv Oblast killing the half of the actual population of the village, about 52 people, just one strike. After you, you experienced that, what are you telling to the world right now?
2: It is first the the most tragic thing that a person who's investigating war crimes ends up as a victim of a war crime herself. But when you actually look at what happened before and what has been happening since, and I actually took the trouble to do that, you find that virtually every week there's another such similar crime. Uh, uh, a a residential building is hit or as happened just a few weeks later uh, another restaurant is hit, Uh, a restaurant in a town about an hour away from Kramatorsk was hit twice uh, uh, and killed again uh, uh, lots of people Um, the very day of Victoria's funeral in Lviv a residential building was hit. I remember Catalina writing to me and saying, "My God, as if as if Putin wanted to chase us to the end of the world," and and this just goes on and on. And and then we have this very recent attack in Krasa, where where he had dozens of 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 dead and many more injured. And what I want to say here, Vladimir, is that I think that the language of war crimes falls short. Of what's actually going on in Ukraine. These are not simply breaches of the law of war. These are not simply excesses or or indiscriminate attacks. This is something that's much worse. This is violence that is directed against civilians. Civilians are being targeted in Ukraine. And that is actually what Constitutes a crime against humanity according to the Rome Statute, Article 7, an attack against a civilian population that is systematic and widespread and that it's a matter of policy. I think this is what's going on in Ukraine, actually Uh, a, a crime against humanity by killing civilians in an intentional way. And the fact that this should be done no less than by a permanent member of the Security Council, by Russia that should be actually safeguarding and protecting the international order and international law, I find personally the most appalling and scandalous thing that has happened anywhere for a very long time.
3: Yes, I agree with you. And uh, there is a hope that there will be justice. There is lots of efforts to do that. And uh, Victoria effort was also one individual effort uh, but together with hundreds of, thousands, hundreds of other and thousands of others' individual efforts of documenting war crimes. I hope one day justice will prevail. Sergio, thank you so much for this difficult but needed conversation.
2: Thank you, Volodymyr. Let me just say one last word uh, about Victoria because I do think about her um, almost every day. Um, I can hardly imagine what it is like for you and especially for her family. Uh, In the end, I did not know Victoria that well. As I said, I mentioned her, met her in Cartagena, invited her to be on our panel and spent these days of intense exchanges with her uh, precisely around the way that Russia was killing civilians in Ukraine. We The first thing we did was an interview before a destroyed building in Kharkiv where I asked her why is Russia using, using violence as punishment against Ukrainians because that was my impression. That was the theme of our visit. And Then we went to visit the house where Volodymyr vakulenko had hit his journal and talked about all of this and the more I, I talked to Victoria, the more impressed I was because she was on the surface, such a, a modest, unassuming person, but she was absolutely lucid about what was going on, about what needed to be done. And I said at the European Parliament, three weeks after her death, when we did an event, uh, which was a tribute to her memory, that I felt that she, every day she became a, a better friend. The more I knew about her, the more I appreciated her not just her courage, but her capacity to really see through what was going on and to tell the rest of the world what was going on in Ukraine. And this is what we must keep alive this spirit of, of, of lucidity and of, of really making sure that everyone knows in every corner of the world the horrific things that Russia is doing every day in Ukraine.
3: Thank you, Sergio. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Valima.